I loved, uh, I don't know who that was, I apologize, but this was a nice touch. Peace be with you. Good job. Okay. So let's begin this morning with a little thought exercise. It's taken from a book uh, entitled Fill These Hearts by Christopher West. I'm just going to read a paragraph to you, see what you make of the paragraph. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful, but if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. Now, unless you have previously read that or been a part of that exercise, or you're incredibly bright and you can solve riddles like that, that paragraph probably doesn't make any sense to you at all. It's difficult to even understand what's being talked about. It's a bit of a riddle. But once I give that paragraph one word of context, everything is going to change. If it changes. There we go. Kite. That's the word I give you. Kite. Now listen. Once more time, one more time to the paragraph. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. One word changes everything. Once you know that word, the paragraph not only makes more sense, it actually comes alive. We can actually picture everything happening in that paragraph. Now, you might be wondering why a series entitled In the Beginning does not begin in the book of Genesis, the first three words in the beginning, but begins rather in the Gospel of Luke. It sounds like we're headed to the book of Genesis, and we are, But it's Luke's account, and a couple other places, that will tell us why we're going in that direction, why we're heading for Genesis, specifically the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Through Luke 24, we are linking the season of Easter and the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus back to the book of Genesis, again, specifically chapters 1 through 11. One word of context will make Genesis come alive in a new way. Indeed, the one word of context we're looking for makes all of Scripture come alive. Luke, the author of the book that bears his name, is not one of the apostles. He's not one of the original disciples. We actually don't meet him until the book of Acts. He's a companion, a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. He's not one of the original disciples. He's not an eyewitness, but he is very meticulous. He has done his research. He has interviewed eyewitnesses to bring us the the best story he can possibly bring of the life of Jesus to the page. In his own words, from Luke chapter 1, verse 3, he has carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Now, when it comes to the resurrection, Luke begins his account in much the same way that John did in his account that we looked at last week. For him, too, it was the first day of the week and early in the morning, although Luke omit, omits the detail that it was still dark that John gave us. That was entirely John's idea, and he had his reasons for doing it. And many of the details in Luke 24 are very similar to what we read last week in John chapter 20. And certainly the most important detail is the same. 
Christ is risen. Thought I would surprise you, but you were ready. Side note, and this has just been fun for me to think about this in a different way. While many of the details are similar, Luke only tells us in his account that Peter ran to the tomb. There is no mention of John at all. After the women, including Mary Magdalene, have come to tell them what they have witnessed in the tomb, we read this, Luke 24, 12. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Sounds very similar to John's version, but John is not in it. No wonder John was all in our faces last week, reminding us that he was there and that he beat Peter to the tomb. The truth is, and this is amusing to me, John is not listed by name in any of the other Gospels as being present. He was there. He's with the disciples, but his name is not mentioned. And I see John 60 years later saying, well, it's time to set the record straight. Not only was I there, but I beat Peter to the tomb. Now we'll just let that go and move on. After that, then we come to our passage for this morning. Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. We only had through verse 27 read. We're going to look at all of it, though. And this is where Luke shifts from what happened earlier on that first day of the week, that first Easter, to what happened later in that day, verses 13 to 16. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. We do not immediately know who these two disciples are. They, are. they are not some of the first disciples, the original 12, but rather part of the outer ring of followers, part of the crowds that were following Jesus. Later we find out that one of them is named Cleopas, and some have suggested that the other was his wife, whom we know from another place in Scripture. Uh, we don't know this for sure, but if it is his wife, guess what her name is? Mary. Way too many Marys. In the scheme of things, they appear almost to be nobodies, at least as we're, as we're seeing it here. We know very little about them, but what we do know is that they are in need. We do know that they are saddened. Downcast is the word that Luke will use here uh, shortly. They are grieving. As they walk along, they are processing everything that has happened over the past few days. And Luke is the only one who gives us this account. And he does so in a very tender way. It is a picture of Jesus who on the most important day of his earthly ministry makes time to come along between or with two disciples who are grieving, who are in need. Once again, we have this detail that they were kept from recognizing Jesus. More literally, their eyes were seized or laid hold of so that they could not recognize him. It's difficult again to know exactly what that means. Did it mean that supernaturally somehow God kept them from recognizing Jesus at first for some reason? Or is it just a way to say that, you know, for whatever reason, they were kept from recognizing Jesus? It's very similar, again, to what happened with Mary Magdalene in John 20 from last week's passage. And in short, we don't know why they were kept from recognizing Jesus. Nevertheless, Jesus initiates a conversation with them. In verses uh, 17 to 19, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these last days? 
What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. When Jesus wants to know further what things have caused them such disappointment, they speak of Jesus as, quote, a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. These words are very similar, and this is important. They're very similar to the words that Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 10 to 12 uses to talk about Moses and to the words of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, as he describes Moses in his speech before he was martyred. You may remember if you get the daily scripture emails that one of the passages I invite you to read this week was from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. And that's a passage in which Moses speaks of a day when God will send a prophet like me, a prophet like Moses, and they are supposed to listen to him and obey him. These two ordinary disciples walking on this road in Luke 24 seem to see Jesus as an answer to this. Jesus is the prophet like Moses, though they could not recognize him at the time. And that is the first hint that we're going to get about what we're going to be doing in this series as we dive into Genesis 1 through 11. Something in the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, something there was pointing to Jesus way back in the story, as far back as Moses, but it goes back even further than that. Cleopas and his companion continue to tell Jesus what has happened in the days, these last days in Jerusalem. So let's finish off the story here. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this has happened. The, the, the tension as it does in these accounts, is building in this narrative. These two ordinary followers of Jesus are laying out the, the, the details of Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion with which we are all very familiar by now. And then they add this other detail. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They see what Jesus' mission is, only they see it incompletely. Yes, Jesus is the one who was going to redeem Israel, but more than that, he was going to redeem the whole world. What they could not see was the way in which this redemption was going to happen. They could not grasp this idea that the Messiah, that the prophet like Moses, would would have to suffer and be crucified in order to bring about this redemption. Then the two travelers quickly recount and summarize the rest of the events. Verses 22 to 24. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. The the details they give are very close to what we heard last week in John chapter 20. And I imagine, I like to imagine, Jesus hearing them tell the details and maybe hoping in this moment that they'll recognize him, that they'll figure out that it's him. That their eyes will be open as they're telling the story of what they suppose might be his resurrection. But they're still not quite there, so then Jesus makes his move. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus' gentle rebuke here tells us that there is something to the Old Testament scriptures that they and many others have missed. That is, that they lead us to Jesus. The Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, lead us to Jesus. They point to his coming, his life, his death, and his resurrection. So Jesus tries to open their hearts and their minds to this reality by explaining to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, I don't know about you, but there is one question I've always wanted to ask Jesus after I read this passage. Jesus, as you walked along and talked with these two disciples, what passages did you quote to explain to them about your coming, your life, your death, and your resurrection? We really need to know that but he doesn't do it. He does not tell us. Of course, there are some passages that many of us might go to in our minds immediately, mostly prophetic words from the prophets or some of the Psalms, perhaps, hints of what the Messiah will be, or even stronger statements about his birth or even his death. But Luke says that Jesus began with Moses and the prophets, then moved to all the scriptures. When we refer to the Hebrew scriptures, when when Jewish people refer to the Hebrew scriptures, it's referred to as the law, the prophets, and the writings. And in Hebrew, that works out to an acronym, Tanakh. So if you hear somebody refer to the Tanakh, it's the law, the prophet, the prophets, and the writings. He does this from Moses to the prophets and into all the scriptures. What Luke and Jesus are telling us is that there is a, a key to understanding Scripture, another key. There is a, a different way to, to read them and to apply them to life. But that way of reading and understanding and application is not immediately apparent. It's not immediately apparent. It will need one word of context to make it all come together. Scholar Peter Enns calls this feature of the Hebrew Scriptures their Christotelic purposes. They're Christotelic purposes. I know Christotelic sounds like a made-up word, but all words are made up. The Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures are Christotelic. The last part of that word, telic, comes from the Greek telos or telos, which means purpose, end, or goal. Folks over at the Bible Project, and you should get to know these people if you don't, they put it this way. From page one to the final word, we believe the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. To be Christotelic, then, is to have the the death and the resurrection of Jesus as the end or the goal of Hebrew scriptures. But it is clear from Jesus' conversation here with these two disciples that this goal is not immediately apparent. Certainly not on a first reading, no. No. It takes a pre-understanding of where the Old Testament is heading before we can truly see that it does lead us to Jesus. It takes the illumination of the Holy Spirit upon our minds and hearts before this in any way can become clear to us. As I was working on this sermon, I remembered something from a long time ago, I'll admit. In the early 1980s, singer-songwriter Michael Card wrote what would become, according to the religious, let's say, recording industry of Association of America... This would become on their list, believe it or not, number 326 of the 365 songs of the 20th century. The most popular version was recorded by Amy Grant. It was entitled El Shaddai, the Hebrew word for God Almighty. 
In the second verse, though it has gone through some revisions, speaking of God, revealing His plan in the pages of Scripture, we hear this. Through the years you made it clear that the time of Christ was near, though the people failed to see what Messiah ought to be. Though your word contained the plan, they just could not understand. Your most awesome work was done through the frailty of your son. Now I want us to notice is the people could not understand. I would suggest that without the illumination of God's Spirit, without some pre-understanding, it simply would not be possible to see it, to understand it. It is only once we get to the other side of God's plan that God's plan is revealed and confirmed. It is only once we get to the other side, namely the resurrection of Jesus, of God's plan, that God's plan is revealed and confirmed. Scholar Joel Green puts it this way. What has happened with Jesus can be understood only in light of the Scriptures, yet the Scriptures themselves can be understood only in light of what has happened to Jesus. These two are mutually informing. Sit with that one for a while. Once we know the ending, once we know where the whole unified story is leading, then everything else takes on additional meaning. Sometimes even entirely different meaning than perhaps what we thought when we first read it. In that paragraph that I read at the beginning of the message, that one word of context was the word kite. But when it comes to opening the scriptures and discovering the powerful underlying current that runs through it all, that one word that opens up the paragraph of the Hebrew scriptures is the one word, Christ. Christ is that word. And I know... I have used this on more than one occasion, but I'm going to use it again. It's like watching a film, getting to the end, and there's a dramatic plot twist. Like in the movie The Sixth Sense. I use it because it's old, and most of you know that Bruce Willis is dead. If you don't, I'm sorry. And I use it because, in reality, I think that M. Night Shyamalan, when he made that movie, like reinvented plot twists like there are tons of movies after that that have that effect but not many before he reinvented it it's a it's a great picture of what happens once the end becomes real once the twist has begun to work on us if we were to rewatch the movie we would see every scene differently than we saw it the first time suddenly everything that was going on all along would become crystal clear and sometimes the filmmaker will even just to make sure you get it while someone is talking, and they did this in the sixth sense, go back and show you little clips of what was happening all along. So, oh, that's what was going on. For the apostles and for the other authors of the New Testament, once they experienced the twist, the plot twist of a suffering and crucified Messiah who rose again from the dead, a rereading of the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, revealed new meaning to them. And if we are illumined by the Spirit of God today, we too can begin to see these things. We we can see that all along the whole thing has been leading us to Jesus. This is what it means to say that the Old Testament is Christotelic. Its goal, its end, its purpose is to lead us to Jesus. 
Now that is not to say that every verse in the Old Testament is about Jesus. It is not to say that the law and the prophets and the writings do not have their own original intended meaning aside from Christ. They do. But now we can see that there is a deeper meaning, a deeper, stronger current that that runs beneath the surface of the whole thing and empties out into the ocean of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And once we see that, everything takes on a new life. Everything means a little something more than perhaps we thought. I believe I heard Scott McKnight, scholar Scott McKnight, refer to this as a sacramental reading of Scripture. A sacrament, according to St. Augustine. Now, we in the Covenant Church observe two sacraments, baptism and communion. A sacrament, according to St. Augustine, is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. An outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. In this case, to read Scripture, to read Genesis 1-11, through as we will do starting next week, is to see in them the once invisible Christotelic purposes made visible to us. Christ made visible to us. This is not a secret reading of the Bible. This is not a secret knowledge. This is certainly not the Bible code where you line up all the Hebrew letters and suddenly you can find predictions of historical events like some magical seek-and-find puzzle. No, 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 no. This is about God taking the writing and the composition and the editing of Holy Scripture and soaking it in the reality that is Christ Jesus. This is about God taking the writing and the composition and the editing of the Word of God and soaking it in the reality that is Christ Jesus. We will begin to dive into Genesis 1 through 11 next Sunday, and I invite you to prepare your hearts and minds by joining with me and others each week and meditating on the passage for each week and by reading related passage, which I would love to send to your email inbox each day. Each passage is prefaced by a few guidelines or questions for you to consider as you read. I made the mistake of doing that in August and everybody loved it, so now I continue to do it. My hope is that as we do this, as we relate to these passages, as we think about them, as we meditate, as we pray through them, that our hearts will be softened, our minds will be better prepared to see both what the passage meant in its original context and where in that passage the Holy Spirit might illumine us and lead us to a deeper experience of Christ. If you're not currently on that list, you can point your phone there, your camera there, to that QR code. It will take you to a place where you can register for that daily email and several others as well if you're interested. There's also a link in the Bible app live event. As Luke 24 progresses, the two disciples come to the village where they were staying, and Jesus acts as if he's going further Again, I I think he does so hoping that they will want to continue the conversation, hoping that they will invite him to stick around, and it works. These two disciples are hooked. They invite Jesus to stay with them, so he did, verses 30 to 32. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? There are different interpretations as to why in that moment Jesus was revealed to uh, these two travelers. The one I'm most fond of is that 
when Jesus breaks the bread and gives it to him, his sleeves may have ridden up just a bit and they could see the scars, they could see the wounds from his crucifixion. There's no way to know this for certain, of course, but a little later in the chapter, that's exactly how Jesus proves to his original disciples. He shows them his wounds so that they will be convinced that it is he in the flesh. But they have difficulty believing it, even though he's standing there. To say that their eyes were opened is a hyperlink for us to go back to Genesis 3, when the man and the woman eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes are opened. But it's also a reversal. The eyes of Adam and Eve are open too, but they do not see God and experience joy. They see their sin and their shame and they hide from God. Here this gets reversed. My prayer for us as we walk through the opening and very important chapters of the book of Genesis, as we hear the one word of context that is Christ Jesus, the scriptures will be open to us in a fresh and inviting way too, that our hearts will burn within us, as was the case for these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now, just to make sure that uh, we see how important this idea is, that the Hebrew scriptures lead us to Christ, I want us to look a little bit further in Luke 24 that we did not have read. Jesus appears to his original disciples. Uh, Cleopas and his companion have seen Jesus in the breaking and the giving of the bread, and they have run back to Jerusalem seven miles away. They found the disciples, and they've gone to say, this is what we saw. While they're still talking, we are told, Jesus appeared among them and said, peace be with you. They're frightened, they're startled, they're afraid. They think they've seen a ghost. Jesus showed them his wounds, asked them for something to eat, likely so he could prove to them that he was not a ghost, a ghost doesn't need to eat. And then we read this. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be filled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and, the, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Friends, Jesus is our one word of context. He is the one whose life, death, and resurrection makes God's plan of redemption and rescue for all of creation come alive in the pages of our Bibles. He is the one word of context that will make you come alive too. Wherever you might be in your own relationship with Jesus, interested doubting, sold out for Jesus, whatever it might be, he still has more yet to reveal to you. So my prayer is that you will join with us as we walk into Genesis chapters 1 through 11, as we learn what is going on and where we came from and what God had in mind, but also as we see by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit's presence where Christ is displayed to us, where Christ is revealed to us in a new and deeper way and all that that can mean for us in our walks with Christ. Would you pray with me as we close? Good and gracious God, I thank you. I thank you for this account that our brother Luke has preserved for us of this beautiful story of disciples walking along the road in grief. And God, I pray for any among us who might be grieving even today for 
different things, that you would walk alongside them too, that you would allow each of them to process in prayer what they have been through, what they are struggling with. And I pray, oh God, as we begin next week to dive into the book of Genesis, that you would soften our hearts, Lord God, that we would ena- you would enable us to look at the, the pages and the accounts there and the poetry and the, and the history and all that's going on in those 11 chapters, Lord God, that we would see something new, that we would see you at work in a new way, that we would experience you at work in a new way in our lives and beyond these walls. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.